Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And we have Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. Hey, Zahava. This month, we are talking about An American Pickle, uh, a new movie streaming on HBO Max. And for our second segment, we're talking about politics in shul. Um, How and how much, if at all, should politics show up in our prayer communities? All right, Mimi, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, An American Pickle to kick us off? Yeah. So as you said, Tamar, American Pickle is currently streaming on HBO Max. Um, It was directed by Brandon Trost and written by Simon Rich based on his 2013 story, Sellout. It stars Seth Rogen as a Jewish immigrant, Herschel Greenbaum, who gets preserved in a vat of pickles and wakes up in modern day New York City. He attempts to fit in with the assistant of his last remaining descendant, Ben Greenbaum, also played by Seth Rogen. I'll just put out there that I hated this movie, but think that there are still interesting things to say about it. What about you guys? I want to hear why you hated it before I tell you what I thought. Oh, my God. Wow. I really feel like there was a lot to hate. Um, So a thing that I've noticed in... A few. I, I watched a Seth Rogen comedy where he was like a speechwriter for the Secretary of State. Yes, I also watched that the, recently. Long shot. I was, yep, also, sorry, disappointing. One of the things that I've noticed about his movies is that there are a lot of just um, totally implausible reactions. And not just comedic, but like, this makes no sense. So, for example, um, Seth Rogen, sorry, the great-grandson Ben is trying to create a startup and it's all about ethically sourced um, products that you can buy and he and his great-grandfather get arrested and so suddenly because he has one arrest not even a conviction and the arrest was for something that he didn't do he is like all over social media as this convicted felon and nobody will buy his startup and I was like Give me a break. If you needed to find a way for Ben, the great-grandson, to get mad at Herschel, his great-grandfather, let's create something a little bit, like, more plausible or weighty. It just felt like total, I don't know. It just felt like the writers were like, uh, what should we do? How could he ruin things? Okay, here we go. I don't know. Am I wrong? No, I totally found that extremely implausible. I also felt like the app was, the app is called Boop Bop. um, And it is supposed to be something where you can like scan a product and find out how ethical the company is that makes the product. And how, I guess, how ethical like the specific product is in theory, which is like actually a fascinating concept. If that app existed, I would use it. Um... And I agree that, like, they have to figure out some way where, like, the app might happen and he's really excited and then it's not going to happen and it's totally failed. And he pivots to, not really a spoiler at all, supporting his great-great-grandfather's pickle business. And it's like, yeah, the, I feel like the, uh, the app didn't, I don't know, that, uh, that didn't work for me at all. Um, mm-hmm. But... It also felt like not the point, but it was weird because it felt like 
they what were they trying to do by telling us that he had this great app that is like a cool idea, but then he just drops it completely. Yeah, I guess that's one of my main criticisms is that there actually felt like there were a lot of just dropped um, possibilities, not and not in a way that I felt like, oh, this story is rich and there's so many different avenues it could have gone down. It, to me, felt sloppy. Um, and I think some of the dropped possibilities also included, most disappointingly for me, the relationships that could have been explored in more depth. I understand it's a comedy and I'm not expecting like, you know, a grand narrative of family, but like Ben Greenbaum, the great grandson, his parents died in a car accident and there's like no real moment of understanding the way that that has played out in his life, except that he used to call his parents Boop Bop, which then he named his app or Herschel Spoilers, Greenbaum, who, Mimi, come on. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so sorry, you're right. Well, let's put a spoiler alert. Or Herschel Greenbaum, who dies before he can like see his children and, you know, He did not die. He was pickled. <laughs> he was pickled. He mourns the loss of the love of his life. And we, I just like, why didn't we get to go there? I was disappointed. Well, I think that like, kind of the reason for that is that this movie is very, um, like airless and hermetically sealed. Like this movie is entirely consists of Seth Rogen talking to Seth Rogen. Um, yes. And there is like a, a wider world that would be very interesting. And I think my problem with this movie, honestly, is that it feels like a really good Saturday night live skit that they tried to extend to the length of a movie. Right. So mm. guy falls into pickle vat and is preserved for 80 years. Um, is kind of a goofy premise. Zahava, I just, I can't let it go that you said that this film feels airless and hermetically sealed. <laughs> and it's a movie about pickles. Oh my God. Yay. <laughs> that, that was, was amazing. Totally unintentional play on words. Um, okay. I, I may be slightly overtired for this taping for what it's worth. Um, but. Or just extra brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> But this is like, okay, so like guy from the shtetl who speaks primarily Yiddish and then like, you know, wears these old school, like, you know, Eastern European peasant clothes and pickles things for a living, wakes up in modern day Brooklyn and surprise, surprise, he has this great kinship with the world of the hipsters where like these all natural pickles with no preservatives and reclaimed jars. And look at that guy with his beard and his vintage clothing. And basically this is like a seven minute Saturday Night Live sketch making fun of Brooklyn hipsters. Right. That is trying to be a movie about Judaism through the generations and like, it's not succeeding at being that movie. Um, right. So I, I think it's interesting, but fundamentally, I'm not sure which one of them is supposed to be the complex character. Neither of them feel fully realized and that at different points during the movie, you get this flash of one of them or the other of them being a more interesting character than you see. And then it sort of lapses into being a Saturday Night Live sketch again. I agree with that. I think that like, this movie is does a bad job of depicting what it might be like to 
have a meaningful connection to your own past, particularly and or any faith at all. And that is disappointing, though not surprising. But it is kind of... So I think it, I think it does tell us what some people do think about um, people who have a relationship with their faith and or their ancestry. That it's there's this idea that like it will provide some deep meaning to your life, but also that deep meaning can come about in. <laughs> In a literally, like, saying Kaddish one, well, two times can be just, like, a really um, life-changing, meaningful experience. To me, I was, like, very irritated about that. That was certainly not my lived experience as somebody who said Kaddish for a year. But also, I just felt like, yeah, this is what people think religion is. Um, Like, a lot of people really think that it's, like, kind of silly and pretty backwards, but it might help you deal with loss. Like, that is not the the role that Judaism has in my life. I mean, I would say there are parts of Judaism that feel backwards, and sometimes it helps me deal with loss, but there's, like, a lot more to it. And this movie just can't conceive of that. And partially, I think it's because of the limitations of the movie, of the story. You know, like, it really is an SNL skit that just, like, grew to 90 minutes. But I think it also, in its own way, is this, like, revealing look at how religion is viewed by people who are not religious. And Tamar, I think that something that you're getting at, I don't know how specific this is to the Jewish context, but... It's the this kind of circularity that you actually do find um, in the like not religious Jewish world where the point of Jewish continuity is Jewish continuity. Right. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, the reason you should be valuing your Jewishness is because your parents did it and your grandparents did it and your great grandparents did it. And the thing that it will bring to you is a connection to those generations um, without any particular greater substance. I, I think you're right, actually, that that this movie for all that it doesn't feel like it conveys anything meaningful to me is actually pretty revealing about a conception of, of uh, Jewish commitment that I find not that meaningful. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me that it's centered on loss. Like the whole movie is about Herschel is grieving the fact that he lost his wife because she died like many years before while he was still being pickled and Ben is grieving his parents, but he's, like, he's sensitive about it. Actually, it feels to me like there must have been some scene that was cut where we, like, learn a little bit more mm-hmm. about them, but maybe not. Maybe this was just, like, a poorly written script. But, like, we don't really get a sense of um, why, like, what their relationship was that he's grieving. Um, we just get a sense that he has kind of, like, in... He, that he has has kind of like stunted grief around them. And that is actually centered in a large way around their graves. So Sarah's graves and Ben's parents' graves are in the same um, graveyard that has been kind of overrun with, it's like gross and has like a highway going by it and a big 
sign over it for vodka. Sarah Um, being Herschel's late wife. I don't know if we've said that. Right. Yeah. Sorry. And so a lot of the movie is like the kind of drama of the movie is Herschel wanting to get enough money to be able to clean up this graveyard. It's it's like weirdly comic that like the the graveyard that's overrun with like weeds and trash and stuff is supposed to be kind of like funny, but also meaningful. But to me, it's just so much like it's about death. Like he's trying to figure out some way to honor people who have died. And um, and there is really no expression of like what it would be to be living in this moment um it's really not about which is you know especially interesting in this specific moment that we're in where like what it looks like to live in the world is dramatically different in september 2020 than it was in february 2020 and it's probably going to be different for a long time and what it means to both like live and what it means to grieve is really different now than it has been. Um, And, you know, I actually think that there is a lot to say about both of those things. And this movie, you know, it's not an ambitious movie. It's not trying. I don't want to make it seem like it's trying to do this stuff and it's failing. Like it's not really trying. It's kind of just gesturing in that direction. Um, But I think it's very telling that like the only thing that this movie can think of to do to honor a a legacy and a person that you love is clean up a graveyard and say Kaddish two times. And that to me is like, woo! (laughs) Like if I was a therapist, I would be like, we have a lot to unpack about this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I watched this film with my mom and, um, she, at the end, she just turned to me and she said, why did he make this? Like, why, why did Seth Rogen take this project? What was in it for him? And I know there are some, there are interviews with Seth Rogen that have, you know, taken a lot of, um, taken up a lot of like Jewish media <laughs> Um, Irb. He gave an interview, I think, to Mark Marin on the What the Fuck What the Fuck podcast. Um, but it seems to me like he is grappling with Jewish identity in some way um, and trying to understand how to both hold dear his connection, like you mentioned, Tamar, his connection to his family um, and to those who he has lost, while seeing very starkly the pieces of Judaism that he finds repulsive or backwards or just against his moral code. I I guess thinking about Seth Rogen as somebody who is smart and can have these moments of really being genuine, um, that grappling just felt so manhandled but just like not well done in the slightest and and in particular you know some of the distasteful elements of Herschel's Judaism or not his Judaism but his time period is that he talks about women in a particularly um chauvinistic way or he you know he's very disdainful of Christians and Russians and 
for whatever reason, the film chose to make that an issue of free speech. Um, like he's this free speech warrior and just, it felt like all of these messages were getting crossed, um, and butchered. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the movie's not totally sure who it's making fun of, I think is the thing for me. Right. So, um, like that plot line seems like it's making fun of current social media driven political discourse. Mm-hmm. Everything becomes a meta debate about the debate that we're allowed to have. Basically, all conversations tumble downhill and in an especially unproductive and silly way. We're making fun of the Internet. We're making fun of the Brooklyn hipsters. And we're at the same time making fun of the actual retrograde, retrograde guy from the pickle vat. Who the butt of the joke here is not clear some of the time or like there are just too many butts of too many jokes. It, it feels unfocused in that way. I think that the parts of this that people like and people saying, oh, this movie is so Jewish is like, there's a lot of like little funny moments of like elbowing your friend kind of recognition um, in terms of just like little bits of Jewish culture. And, and frankly, like two weeks after seeing this movie, I cannot call up any of them to mind in any way that makes me smile. So I guess that says something. Um, One thing that I, I don't know if this is me being humorless or whatever, finding this distasteful, but the movie opens up with like a, um, you know, back in Europe, back in the shtetl, the courtship and getting together of Herschel and his wife, Sarah, before they immigrate to the United States. And essentially this is like, isn't it hilarious that Jews were impoverished peasants and kept getting killed by Cossacks? Like, Mm -hmm. and like, no, no, it's actually not. And like, I guess like it might be very Jewish to make wry jokes about these things and maybe it's me, but I felt like the movie was determined to treat Herschel as truly ancient history when in fact it's really not that long ago um and like Jews getting killed in pogroms is just like not something that only happened in the year 43 like this is just it it all feels just a little too modern to be that complacent about it I don't know is that just me being humorless No, I also thought the tone of that was like, it's like gruesome, but it's like, I feel like the gruesome, gruesome stuff as a joke, it only works if it's like really funny and surreal. And this is like not, (laughs) um, I also, it also just feels like there's a, there's a program that happens like at their wedding. And it's like, that is Fiddler on the Roof. Like just that it's not necessary to copy exactly that thing from Fiddler on the Roof. It just makes it seem like people really think that every wedding ended with a pogrom, which is not true and or helpful, you know? Like, I also just think, like, it, there's a lot about, like, shuttle life that hasn't really been grappled with by the Jews of today that's not well portrayed in these films. Not that I'm an expert in the shuttle, but my understanding of the shuttle is that it's a lot more complex than it's often portrayed yeah I also found that part gross did we like anything about this movie I feel like we're sort of roundly trashing it um but while I was watching it I didn't spend the entire time like hating every minute and now I'm trying to figure out what I found sort of neutral to pleasant 
I didn't hate it. I just didn't think it was successful. Like, it was a fine way to spend an hour and a half in a pandemic where it's like sometimes you just want to not think about anything for that time. Like, it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I... Like, I didn't have the reaction that Mimi had to it, where I was like, I hate this and I want it to die. I was like, this was not well done, but fine. The one thing that I did like about it, um, there were a few, I can't bring them up right now, but there were a few digs at startup culture and app culture and tech broiness um, that just really made me happy. Um and like venture capital, all of that bullshit. Um, and I liked the role that Seltzer played in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Seltzer found was like the nectar of the gods, all those yes, bubbles. Her- Herschel really wanted Seltzer. And like, man, I did find myself thinking I could go for a pickle and some seltzer right now. And I treated myself Oh my myself God, I to- really wanted pickles when I yes. finished this movie. If you can watch this whole movie and not be like, somebody bring me a pickle, then that is impressive. <laughs> um, I just want to, two things that um, I have seen people say about this, which I think are very interesting, is one that like they're in Brooklyn and somehow like, encounter no other Jews and in fact like he has to go back to Poland in order to get a Jewish experience which is truly bizarre on many levels and I think just speaks to the fact that like yeah these people like do not the people who make this movie like they do not know any observant Jews in Brooklyn (laughs) like they just don't and so like the idea that like you could connect this story to that um, did not enter their minds. Um, And it's funny that uh, Mimi, that you said that you like the like startup culture thing, because I work at a like tech company and I was like, one of the places where I found myself being very didactic was I was like, the person who makes the app doesn't spend like is not working on the logo like that's not the the work that one does on an app and like I I found myself being like how is it possible that you worked on this for five years and like who else is working on it like please Mm -hmm. tell me that you had some other job during this time and that's how you're affording this amazing apartment like amazing apartment what was that (laughs) Um, (laughs) anyways, uh, but I, and I think that the whole kind of approach to Ben's life was very underbaked. It's a Cheeto. It's not creme brulee. So I feel like we just, you just need to know when you're getting it, that you're getting a Cheeto and like the mouthfeel is going to be great for like 15 seconds and then. It will be you're getting gone. you're getting a Vlasic pickle. You are not <laughs> getting a Bubby's or anything made in a barrel. True. <laughs> there you go. I think that we have fully pickled an American pickle. So let us move on to the much more complex topic of talking about politics at Jewel. So it is election season here in the U.S. 
Um, and also, I guess, in Israel, since it's apparently always election season in Israel. Um, and the high holidays are coming. And so, in general, in the world, I feel like I'm hearing a lot more political conversation than usual. Because of COVID, I haven't been in a shul since March. But I have a lot of experience of kind of thinking about politics at shul and thinking about how my shul seems to be approaching political conversations. And so I'm curious, like, what you all have experienced in the past in terms of kind of like political messages that you have felt from your religious communities. And if you feel like that is changing in any way in this current world where like we're not in shul so much, but we are still somewhat in community with each other. So how about, why don't you start us off and tell us how how you've seen things go in the past and maybe what, if anything, you're seeing now and how you feel about it. I've been turning this over in my head a little bit. So I think in the past, in the Orthodox communities that I have been a part of, it is relatively unusual for rabbis to speak from the pulpit about politics that does not have in some way to do with Israel or anti-Semitism. There's the sense that like the Jewish politics is fair game. Beyond that, it's it's not our business in the synagogue. And usually I would prefer for my pulpit to be politics free, in part because I don't think rabbis are that good at it. Like this, this is not their sphere. (laughs) Um, And like this, just this isn't the wisdom that I need from my rabbi as a rule. And I think that there have been a few moments in the last four to five years that have broken through that have been just like, if your rabbi got up the Shabbos after the 2016 presidential election and didn't say anything about it, it would be weird. It would be like he had been stuck in a vat of pickles. Like, like what, you know, what universe are you living in? If you can talk about anything else. Um, I was not a fan of the sermon that the rabbi of the shul I was attending at, a t- at the time gave that the next morning. Um, but yeah, I just, I usually don't feel like it's additive and it usually also feels very shoehorned in to the format that they're like, they're trying to speak about the Parsha, but the Parsha magically reveals something about the, the right. hottest political topic of the week feels a little bit, it always feels forced. I, I may have more complexity to bring to this as, as we go along, but I'll leave it there for now that that's usually been my reaction. Mimi, what about you? I think in some of the more liberal, religiously liberal communities that I've been a part of, I've had some rabbis who are just amazing orators and community organizers and political um, advocates. I'm thinking in particular of a rabbi who I think just wears this balance very well. Her name's Rabbi Lauren Grabel Herman. We had her on the show several years ago. Um, and she's now a rabbi at SAJ in New York, um, a reconstructionist congregation. And anyway, I, I've seen it done so well, um, to talk about politics from the Bema. And I think the, when it's done well, it's backed up by 
a real community process where it's clear that the community is brought into on this particular cause, whether it's voter registration or protesting the Muslim ban at the beginning of Trump's early days of Trump's presidency, um, that, that it's tied to action. And I, I think also it's typically, well, I guess one thing that is really important to me is that my rabbis speak about policies and actions, not about particular politicians. Maybe that's just, maybe that's an arbitrary line. I think it's increasingly becoming arbitrary as like every policy is just so clearly files into a particular party, but we can talk more about that. Isn't it illegal to specifically support a person from the pulpit? Like, I think you're not allowed to say you, you can sacrifice your 501c3 status by saying like, vote for Mimi, but saying like, people who vote for Mimi are good people. Yeah. It's okay. Right. Or yeah, we should all thank this politician for what he or she has done for our community. Yeah. I I mean, even if it's not about vote for this guy, I think just getting too particular into like the person rather than the policies is helpful for me. I've seen it done well, but I do have a lot of fears about it because I have this notion that I should be comfortable going into a shoal in different communities and not feel called out about my politics. And so therefore, shouldn't I need my shoal to be open to people of different political ideologies? And so that's where I get really uncertain. Like, I love it only when it's for me and not if it's ever against me. I don't know, Tamar, can you help me pick that apart or Zahava? I mean, I'm with you. I'm I'm okay with politics from the BIMA when it is politics that I don't find to be abhorrent. Right. <laughs> and and in a way, I think that the Torah is political. I think you can you can and people do pick and choose Torah to support whatever positions they feel. But I also think like there are some positions that are pretty clear in the text that you can use to support political things right now. And that's what I want from my religion. You know, like there's a lot of things. It's funny because we were just talking about an American pickle, which like doesn't really understand what religion is for and thinks it's just about loss. And like, for me, it's like, it is about helping me deal with loss, but it's also like a lot about helping me make sense of the world and find meaning in the world and do good in the world. And so, yeah, like I want the people who are leading my communities to speak to how we can do good in the world, because I think like that is a mitzvah. Like it's a commandment that we're supposed to like make the world better and more just. And so like, I do want that to happen, but I agree that I think that like, it's very often not successful. And I think like, it's largely because rabbis and lay leaders who do it are not that good at, they, they don't know enough um, about the issues to necessarily speak well about it and be like, it's just not their area of expertise. They care, but they just aren't as well-versed in it as they could be. 
I think also sometimes it doesn't work because you get like a feeling in the room right away when it starts to happen that people are like, oh no, he's talking about politics. Like Kiddush is going to be crazy today. (laughs) And so like sometimes I feel like people can just be on edge about it, even if it's not really controversial. And that can be frustrating. Like I personally, I don't ever want to hear a Dvar Torah that isn't grounded in text in some way. So like, if you want to talk about gun control, like I'm all for it, but like, I still want you, even if I think like it's an obvious pikuach nefesh thing, like I do want you to like bring, start by grounding me in text and being like, this is a Jewish issue because we have this law. It's in the Torah. This is how it applies to this. Like I, in general, for any Dvar Torah, I want to be grounded in, in sources. And especially if it's politics, it's like, if you don't do that, then like, why is this a Dvar Torah and not just a political speech? Right. I think I want to differentiate maybe between a few things here, which is one is between potentially between politics and social justice. And one is between the morning drusha, like the sermon that you give during Saturday morning services, primetime slot versus a class. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those are both important distinctions for me, because if you wanted to talk about like what Judaism can can teach us about gun control, like to do that in a way that isn't 100% motivated reasoning that you're speaking as like a, you know, shoehorning the politics of the day into your Saturday morning speech, like that had better be a class. Like that had better be a shiur where you are exploring multiple sources and and coming to the text in in an honest way and trying to learn something from it instead of like taking the campaign speech you wanted to give and and like hanging it on the peg of this week's Parsha. So I think that, that I am much more okay with substantive exploration of what Jewish texts say about an issue that is in that is in the news, in the public eye, in the political consciousness than I am with like politics in, in, in the sermon. Like that feels different to me. What can you give an example of like a topic that you think like would be politics in a sermon? My point is that it's not about the topic. Like you can have the same topic in both forums, like, and one would be, I think, interesting and helpful and, and, deep because like teaching a genuine class with multiple sources and like where we're sitting down and sifting through material that that's the right kind of forum for what does Judaism say about X issue of the day versus I, the person with the privilege of this particular pulpit, I'm going to monopolize you for this non-negotiable 15 minute slot in the middle of shul. um, And I'm just basically going to tell you what I think and then like wedge it into the Saturday morning like what happens to be the Parsha this week, those are different things. So to me, it's not a, a matter of the issue. It's a matter of like one format being more useful than the other. Uh, and the other thing that I was saying, like the difference between politics and social justice, like, yes, I think there is a, a, a genuine Jewish imperative to bring about greater justice in the world. I think that it is like there are things in the world where the question of whether or not that thing advances that advances the cause of good and justice in the world is should be non-controversial and therefore it isn't politics right if you were to stand up and say like hey everybody like 
look around at the significant difference between the wealth in our community and the city that surrounds us. Like we need to be doing more outward facing work that recognizes that we have more and other people have less and we need to be doing this thing. Like that's not like politics. And there are people that might say that it was politics. Um, but I, I think that like, there's a reasonable distinction to be made between that and things that are debatable. Like what, like what would be something that you're like, it's politics, but it's not social justice. I was just like, I found myself, for instance, very irritated every time I heard a rabbi talk about the Iran nuclear deal. Right. Like this could be actually very important for like the the fate of Israel. I get that. But like you are adding nothing to this conversation. There's basically nothing that, that you could say that's going to change anybody's mind here. And like this isn't about something that our community should be doing in this moment. I think this is another this is another thing that I would say, like, you know, sometimes you talk about political candidates as they campaign and it's just like, who are they trying to convince with that argument? And often the answer is nobody. They're not winning anybody over. It's base mobilization. I think that usually politics from the pulpit is not winning anybody over. It's base mobilization. Like I have never, ever seen anyone say, I had disagreed with that, but then the rabbi spoke about politics from the pulpit and he convinced me, she convinced me that this is the new, like that has never happened to anyone I know, but it could be like, I kind of thought this was true. I believed this, but I wasn't putting any muscle behind it. And like the rabbi got up and made me feel like this thing that I already believe is a more salient moral issue. And maybe I should show up for it. Like, but if you're in a community where X issue, whatever X issue is, is going to be debated, then you're done. All you're doing is making people yell at each other over lunch. Right. I mean, that's why it's shocking to, for me that talking about the Iran nuclear deal, like there's too many nuances there. I think that, that the third piece is the moral voice, the moral leadership piece that can take place in a shior, but I think is best positioned in a Devar Torah or a sermon. And whether that's about Zahav, as you mentioned, like being better citizens of our city, or if it's about we have to cause a ruckus about the fact that there are children in cages at our southern border. I actually need my rabbis to be that more that voice of moral outrage. Um, to mobilize me, to mobilize my neighbors, to help us find ways to get involved. So I guess for me, like that's, those are political issues. Those are particular policies that we're being asked to mobilize on, but they're issues of, for me, great moral clarity for me and my community, I think. And to me, that's where it's precisely important for rabbis to speak up. I think the reason I was having trouble, like figuring out what you were talking about is because I was kind of putting all Israel dress out aside partially because when someone starts talking about Israel, I just stop listening. Also because like, yeah, those, they never have anything to do with anything. And in fact, I guess this was last summer when both of the rabbis at my shul were out of town. It was like different people get asked to give a drash and somebody got asked to give a drash. And it was literally like, this is what I did on my vacation in Israel. <laughs> And she had volunteered at a project and she was talking about this project, but it was 
just like by zero stretch of an imagination, a Dvar Torah, like no Torah took place. That's not what usually happens in the middle of shuls. Like somebody gets up and talks about their vacation. And so obviously I don't want that, but not because it's like politics and shul, just because like it's bad. I don't know that I can think of a single time that I've heard a Dvar Torah that was about that issue that like deepened anything um, for me. It just is like, okay, everybody knows, like, what, like, what's that? was it? Like, everybody knows what they think already. And, uh, the people who are leading the conversation are very often not the best equipped to do so. But yeah, I, I do have a lot of experience with things that, you know, things that are social justice, although something like gun control, like, I don't know, that's not, it's kind of social justice, but it's different than what I think of social justice. Like, it's not so much a poverty issue. It's so kind of weirdly unique to this country's psyche issue. And yeah, like I do want my shul to talk about that. And I want to hear from leaders about what they think about that. But also like, and and I this was like a live issue at my shul. It was like we wanted to have a sign that was like, please don't bring guns into the shul. And there was like this whole thing about like, would that make us obviously less safe? And somebody found out that, like, at another shul, somebody has been carrying a, their gun to shul every week. And, like, should we have somebody who had... Like, it was just, like, an insane conversation that I really found upsetting, but also was glad that we were having. Because it's like, yeah, I actually definitely want to know if there's someone at shul who is carrying a gun um, for a lot of reasons, but mainly because, like, people who have guns tend to use them, and I maybe don't want to be there <laughs> if I know that it's there. You know, I, I, I think that's, like, an important conversation for a community to have. I think that, like, every year on the high holidays, it always feels like the stakes are higher for everything, um, both kind of, like, in our own spiritual lives and... Obviously, for rabbis, it's like the biggest, most important time of the year. And their sermons on the high holidays are, you know, in large part, the most public thing that they do every year. And they are very often, I think, in my experience, at least, there's, there is politics pretty deeply embedded in them. And with a variety, I think, of levels of success. But do you, okay, if you are not confident that the rabbi is going to say something that you more or less agree with, how, how politically cohesive do you think your communities are in settings where you think that this is good? I mean, I know that my community is not very politically cohesive, which I know some people think is good, although I don't because I think the political positions that I hold are good and other ones are not good. <laughs> um <laughs> That really distinguishes you from I know. everyone well, else, I'm just, I'm just saying. I, I would like to be open about the fact that I think that I am right and other people are wrong. And that is why I don't necessarily think it's, like, some great sign of, like, welcomeness that our community has, like, divergent opinions on this stuff. I'm like, I don't know. We should probably just agree on what's the right thing to do in a situation where it seems pretty obvious to me. So whatever. That's an aside. But I think that, like, even when I don't agree with someone's political with the political position that's being held I 
honestly, I think it's good because it's like, I want to know. Like, I want to know if I'm in a shul where, like, a lot of people bring guns to shul for my own personal safety. And also because, like, that does help me to understand a lot of things about that community. When I lived in Nashville, like, I remember being at shul on a Shabbos Mincha and having someone talk about all of their guns and just being like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm in a place where there's a lot of from Jews who have guns. I never thought I would be in a place like that, but here I am. I live here now. Like, that was just, it was new to me and it was very helpful for me to know that. And it's like, yeah, like the reason I don't want to know about Israel is because I feel like I just shut down in those conversations. Like I'm so bored by them that it's like, I'm not going to learn something from them because I will just be thinking about my to-do list for the next day. Like there is no part of me that's going to be listening. But for other issues, like even if I don't like it, like it is useful to me to hear that. And like an example is several years ago, I attended a shul to say Yisker for my mother. And it was not a shul that I normally go to. And the rabbi gave a dvar, one of those like <laughs> long stream of content, stream of consciousness, where you can tell kind of going in, like this is not going to end well. And the drash was about how unexpected good things sometimes come from bad things and the examples were the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva went to a modern Orthodox high school the modern Orthodox high school being the bad thing the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva being the good thing and then the other example was secular Jews gave us the state of Israel (laughs) and I was like I've learned a lot from this apparently modern Orthodox community that has a lot of issues (laughs) like it was like I now know I probably shouldn't even come here for Yisker. And the craziest thing was the modern Orthodox high school that was bad, that the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva came out of, was it the modern Orthodox high school that I went to. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, my school was being dissed. (laughs) Um, And I was just like, you know, I agree with you that my high school was a bad thing. I don't agree with you about the good thing that came out of it. But also, I think I need to not come back here. So anyways, it was useful. Well, I think that that's where in a lot of communities, um, speaking politics from the Bema can become a real problem. I mean, I'm thinking about my home community in Little Rock, Arkansas, where there are three shuls, Chabad, a conservadox, and a reform congregation. And when the reform rabbi speaks about certain political issues, people will leave. People will not just leave that service, but will drop their membership to the shul and will not go anywhere else because there aren't other places that accept them, not accept them, but that where they would feel comfortable. And, you know, I think that maybe, Zahava, it comes back to what you were saying. You have to be pretty clear, pretty sure that you know where your community lies when you when you give these sermons. Because in a lot of places, people don't have other options. This is their Jewish practice. And again, I think about myself, if I were in a community where all I could hear from the Bema were politics that I found repulsive, I would opt out of Judaism altogether in that community. Yeah, I think that, you know, the idea that it's revealing about the people around you, I think is true. But also, I'm not sure that like, 
it's it's a prudent use of my Jewish community resources to disqualify communities for that reason necessarily. And I say this as somebody who often diverges from the politics of the community around me. Like I just don't, it's, it's a scarcer resource than that. And I don't know necessarily that anything is being accomplished by confronting it week after week. Sometimes it's a matter of emphasis, right? Like I've been in situations, for instance, where I, I heard rabbis talking about anti-Semitism on campus, which the example that they referenced may have been genuine, but it also seemed marginal and and like a hyper emphasis of Jewish victimhood in a, this is several years back, and it was a particular moment in context where I didn't think it was particularly salient or helpful, and it felt more than anything else like a simple like lack of hakarat hatov, like lack of gratitude for the incredibly secure position that like Jews in that setting were actually in. And like my reaction to that was not, no, anti-Semitism is good, or no, that thing that you're referencing isn't anti-Semitism. Like, did I disagree with like on a sentence level, everything he was saying? No, but I also just didn't think that it was the subject for like, why are we doing this? It just didn't seem important. And it seemed like the wrong emphasis. I'm not saying we should never talk about anti-Semitism. It was a very particular example. Um, and I may not be describing it well, but my, my point is just that the most salient issues of the day, if you are politically engaged, you're already going to know what you think. If you're not politically engaged, it does seem like an odd place to get your primary political information. Um, I I can see the value in... But if you're not politically engaged, like, it might be that you don't get political information anywhere else because you don't care. But then, like, you, go, you do care about going to shul, so you go to shul and you get it there. So, but that's really what I mean about base mobilization. Like, if... This is something that like everybody's basically going to agree on, but they just don't care enough or they don't see it as central to their Jewish lives. And maybe they should like you can maybe have a productive conversation if you want to have a thought provoking, like in-depth class. I think there's room for that. But I just I think it does not tend to end well when it's like the rabbi is going to take a side in something that is contentious in this community. In something that is not central to to the Jewish practice of the community. And maybe your argument is like, these things should be central to the Jewish practice of the community. I don't know. I'm reminded of a, of a conversation I was listening to a few years ago between two community rabbis, two, two community assistant rabbis. One uh, was the assistant rabbi of a, of a large uh, Orthodox shul. And one was the assistant rabbi of a large reform shul. And um, the, um, the reform rabbi was talking about how, their community was not politically unified, but the shul was fairly tolerant of, of her political activities. Um, and she was probing on the Orthodox rap, the boundaries of the Orthodox rabbi's job saying, for instance, you know, I've gotten arrested at protests. Um, do, how do you think your shul would react if you got, if you got yourself arrested? And I was just like, these are, these are very different universes <laughs> coming in. But the notion that like something that a rabbi should do in their capacity as a rabbi is getting arrested at, at a protest strikes me as incredibly rare in the Orthodox world, in part because the rabbi's job description is, is pretty full with detailed day-to-day -day religious administrative needs of like a very 
specific set of observances. And, and I, I, it just feels like at best it's going to be the 50th order responsibility. I don't know. That wasn't a very well-constructed stream of consciousness, but I'm just putting it out there. It didn't end with uh, secular Jews gave us the state of Israel, so I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) So it'll fly. I just hope that there are ways for Orthodox rabbis to still be the voice of moral leadership of their communities, even if it doesn't include getting arrested at protests. I mean, I, I hope that that's not the 50th order of responsibilities, that there's a way to find that space. That to me feels like the most pressing issue, not like it's an issue of politics from the Bema, but I think it's more, it's, it's so much more to have somebody say, you know, the poverty that we see in this city or the children being split from their families is wrong. Don't we need that? Don't we need to push our rabbis to say that? I mean, I I think we do, but I, honestly, what I want is I want a rabbi to deepen or any religious leader to deepen something for me like I don't need a rabbi to tell me that um it's wrong to shoot people you know what I do want is a rabbi or not necessarily rabbi a leader to help me to kind of like dig into something and add dimensions to it when the whole Anthony Weiner scandal came out I was living in New York at the time and that weekend, someone gave a drash at Kehila Hadar where I was going to shul. It didn't explicitly reference Wiener at all. It was about leadership and like the responsibilities of leadership. And it was very grounded in text. But it was one of those things where like, I, I don't know, I haven't ever talked with any about anyone about it. But I felt the strong subtext of what was happening in the news. Like, extremely it felt extremely present to me in what she was saying and it added a sense of nuance it it was just helping me to think about like what is leadership what is the obligation how can you fail at it and how can you succeed at it and what does it look like to hold a leader responsible I don't know maybe it really was about like where my what I was thinking about that day that it felt to me like it spoke so directly to something that was happening in the news but it felt to me like she could have like Anthony Weiner was in like parentheses at the end of every sentence and I found it to be very I think moving is maybe too strong of a word but helpful it was like it it was like a smart way of looking at a kind of complex sad situation and Ultimately, like, that's a lot of what I want Judaism to do and what I want rabbis to do for me is, like, help me to think about this situation. And, you know, in some ways, it's like, help me to think about what I can do to make it better. But sometimes it's like, just help me grapple honestly with, like, the reality of this this terrible thing. Um, And That sounds great. Yeah. And also not, like a sermon that's framed as a sermon about politics. Like if something can be working on multiple levels like that and what it really feels is like that person is giving you a Torah lens that is applicable to the issues of the day. That's different than them getting up and saying, I'm going to talk about the issues of the day. That seems like, I'm not going to say that's not politics. I'm going to say that seems like the rare model of this that's helpful and most people would have done that poorly 
Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, Mimi, what you said about rabbis occupying a position of moral leadership, and that is a really necessary part of the job, and I don't want to disagree with that at all. I think that some of this is about having a rabbi tell you when something shouldn't be relegated to something that could be bracketed as politics. Mm. To say, like, children being taken from their parents in this moment, this isn't politics. Like, I don't, I don't want that conversation to end up in debates about, like, border walls and a guest worker program. Like, we are talking yeah. about a moral issue that transcends politics. Like that is a moral clarity and a leadership that I think absolutely comes from the rabbi and is very different from them getting down in the political conversation, like being able to lift the moral threads out of the political conversation. Mm. So I guess that actually both of your examples are clarifying for me what I think is a good way to do this. And that is How do you present what you're doing, right? Lifting the moral dimension out of the political conversation and saying, here is, here's where Judaism expects us to be moral people rather than mere political actors. And I, I I don't mean to say that politics is not a moral enterprise um, or not an enterprise in in determining values, just that uh, different conversations have different tools and debating politics, quote unquote, is not the same set of tools as defining morality or um, or understanding the world through a tower lens. And just the two examples that you just gave feel um, feel clarifying for me about that. That might be a great place to land. Yeah. What do you think? I'm always happy to be given the last word. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that we have arrived at our endorsement section. So, um, Zahava, what do you have to recommend to us this month? I am going to recommend something that everyone else may already have gotten to um, and something else that I am incredibly unqualified to speak to. So, (laughs) okay. I'm very excited. <laughs> Second one first. Longtime listeners of this podcast know that I'm a very inexperienced challah baker and that my first uh, start to finish challah production experience was with Tamar in her kitchen. Um, and since then, I've done a little bit of independent challah making. But um, but since the beginning of the pandemic, like a lot of people, uh, I have started doing uh, challah baking at home um, in part to save us yet another trip out into the world. And, um, in part because we don't need as much challah cause we're not hosting any meals. And so anyway, I've been experimenting with things and what I've been trying to do is make a big batch of dough and figure out how to parcel it out over, uh, several weeks. So a lot of people seem to make their challah, freeze it, and then thaw ready-made challahs. But my husband was like, fresh baked challah is so nice. Is there a way you can freeze the dough, like you can sometimes buy those ready braided raw dough things in the supermarket. Can you do something like that? So I've experimented with a couple of ways of doing this. So everybody may already know this, but what I have discovered is that shaping the challah, putting it in the freezer unwrapped until it's firm, and then doing your full on plastic wrap Ziploc bag thing so that you don't just have like a blob of mushy dough 
the, the ah. shapeless blob when you unwrap it because you didn't wrap it until it was firmly shaped. Um, this has been a breakthrough for me. Um, so now every week I just unwrap the challahs that I have already shaped and bake them. And I have freshly baked challah, even though I'm only actually making it once every four weeks or so. Um, that is a and- awesome pro tip, but I have a follow-up question. When you take it out of the freezer, do you let it totally defrost and then you put it in the oven? Yeah, I am giving it like roughly four hours sitting on a baking sheet, fully defrosting and kind of poofing up a little bit. And then I do the egg wash and put it in the oven. Okay. When you, sorry, I'm just, I'm thinking about the second rise. Usually I, when I make challah dough, I make the dough, then I braid it, then it rises for a while, then I bake it. So you make the dough, you let it rise, you braid it, then you freeze it. And then when you take it out, you let it totally defrost and then it does its second rise then? Yes. Got it. Or if you have a third rise recipe, then save the third rise for after the thaw. Got it. Um, So, and I'm actually, I've been experimenting with a few different recipes, but actually Tamar a while back had endorsed the Modern Jewish Baker cookbook by Shannon Sarna. And I've found that that her challah recipe in that book is great with this technique for what it's worth. really excellent recipe. Yes. Um, Okay. So that is my unqualified tip. And then the endorsement that everybody else may already be on board with is um, I recently read Spinning Silver by Naomi Naomi Novik, excuse me, um, which is a fantasy novel. I think it may be marketed as a young adult fantasy novel. Um, People might know her from her previous book, Uprooted, or from the Temeraire series that she writes, which is basically like Napoleonic Wars, but fought on the backs of dragons. Anyway, um, but... (laughs) So Spinning Silver is a very Jewish uh, fantasy novel. Um, So it's a very loosely based uh, on the story of Rumpelstiltskin. But the protagonist is um, a young observant Jewish woman in her Lithuanian-ish shtetl, uh, whose father is the town moneylender. And just having observant Judaism, both sort of authentically conveyed Jewish history and observant Jewish practice in the context of a fantasy novel just blew my mind. Um, and it, it almost feels like, why would you have religion in a world where you also know that you have like demons and elves and whatever, but I don't know. I never think twice when in fantasy novels, people celebrate Christmas. So I was like, this is cool. I'll go with it. And it just, it felt actually like, uh, a fantasy novel authentically rooted in plausible Jewish history, except in an alternate universe where there's magic. Um, so it's fantastic. It came out in 2018. So spinning silver by Naomi Novik and, uh, freeze your challahs unwrapped before, uh, uh, so that they can firm up before you wrap them and freeze them and bake them later. Those were amazing tips, Zahava. I can't wait to (laughs) try both. I, I'm like going to go purchase that book after we finish recording. Likewise. Um, Mimi, so what do you have to endorse? Well, I have to jump off the YA, um, jump, jump back on the YA train because so I, when I get pandemic sad, I read romance novels. And for those of you not lucky enough to be Tamar Fox's Facebook friend, you are missing out on some amazing recommendations. So I read a book based on a recommendation on Tamar Fox's Facebook wall. It's called Eleanor and Park. Um, the author is Rainbow Rowell, I think. 
This book was just so delightful. It's so good. Um, it takes place in Nebraska and it's about this unlikely couple, um, high school outcasts, um, Eleanor and Park, who is half Korean. Anyway, it just, it really took me to a happy place for the three days that I read it. And I highly suggest it. If romance novels are your thing, if YA lit is your thing, try out Eleanor and Park. Tomorrow, am I doing it justice? Yes. It's my love. It is very good. I also listened to the audiobook of it with my partner. And that was oh. a very fun activity. It was like on a long car ride. So I recommend that. Yeah. The audiobook does the really nice thing where it trades off the male and female readers, which I just sort of love. I don't know. Yes. Another great thing that I want to endorse is a daily poem service. It's called Poem, P-O-M-E. Um, basically, every day they'll send you a decent size, not a super short, but a decent size poem into your inbox. I always, you know, I find like Friday afternoon when I'm just like dying to get out of work is when I'll catch up on my poems. But it's been really lovely. And in particular, I want to endorse a poem called Things to Do in the Belly of the Whale by Dan Albergati. Do you got, have I already endorsed this poem? No, but I love that poem. No, I haven't heard of it. Oh. It's so good and it's so pandemic perfect. Save this one for like when it's winter and we still are doing this. Um, things to do in the belly of the whale. I'm just going to read maybe the first half. Measure the walls, count the ribs, notch the long days. Look up for blue sky through the spout. Make small fires with the broken holes of fishing boats. Practice smoke signals. Call old friends and listen for echoes of distant voices. Organize your calendar. A fabulous poem. I highly recommend looking it up and finding the rest of it. I love that poem. That's a great one. I have a much less light endorsement, um, which is that I am reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, Isabel Wilkerson also wrote The Warmth of Other Suns, which is about the great migration in the United States, which is an incredible book. Um, if you have not read it, uh, it's just astonishing. Uh, she did 1,200 interviews um, to write that book, and it's just an unbelievable, um, an unbelievable book. Uh, and ever, I think it should be required reading in this country. I learned so much from it, and I think about it every day. Um, and Cast is her um, next book, and it is about the caste system in the United States um, as compared to the caste system in India and um, in the Third Reich. And it is really, it just really is giving me a new framework to think about the country that we live in. Um, and one of the things in it that like really blew my mind and made me really uncomfortable is that um, she writes about how when the Nazis were coming up with like the way that they were going to organize Nazi society, they sent researchers from Germany to the American South to see how we do racism in this country. And then they had a meeting where they were like, report back your findings 
And some of the things that the German researchers said they saw, the Nazis were like, that's too far. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really crazy that we live in a country that the Nazis looked at and were like, whoa, maybe not that much. Um, and having a new way of looking at it is really you know, it's hard. I, it's not a fun feeling, but I, uh, have found it to be really moving and helpful to me as I kind of try and think about my own internalized racism and where to kind of direct my attention at this time. So yeah, I think, and, and it also is a really interesting way, particular, particularly to think about like how I feel as a Jew, um, thinking about, the way that the Nazi tr Nazis treated Jews and how I feel as a white person um, in the United States, it, it just is really, uh, it, it feels very close to home in a way that's very difficult, but uh, very helpful to me. And she's just a, really an incredible writer who did an incredible amount of, of research and has, I think, makes an a really powerful case. I think it is especially good going into the high holidays because I think it gives us a lot to think about our own guilt and complicity and what it means to repent. It's not fun, but it's really good. Cast The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave us a review on um, Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. Uh, you can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can continue bringing you new episodes every month. Thank you so much, Sahava. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thanks, guys. This was fun. I will see you both next month. See ya. See ya.